I'm Gwen. And I'm Liz. And this is the podcast, The Way We Connect, exploring the way we relate, date, and communicate. And today, Gwen, what are we going to be talking about? We're talking about work today. Work. Yes. And specifically, (laughs) can we we be our authentic selves Mm -hmm. at work? So what do you think? I mean, is work something you associate with being your real self? Real self. I mean, I would even go into asking the question, what is my real self as well? Mm. Um, Because I can see that there's a part of me that is reflected in the job that I do. Um, Is that my deepest, truest self that I love the most? No, definitely not. Um, But I think it is something that I am able to pull outside of me um, in my job. You know, of course, I am an English teacher. That is the work that I do to get paid. Um, And when I'm teaching, I feel like I have to uh, expand my introvert side to be more extrovert. But that extrovert side is a part of me Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And so it's it's hard. I think that I think that on one end, I do have to close a part of myself off. I can't yell at people when they say really, uh, let's say, discriminatory things, yeah, which is not my real self. in the world of teaching. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, but at the same time, I'm still able to project part of my personality, which it's kind of fun. It's something different. I'm kind of doing a show of, of myself yeah, when I'm teaching. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think teaching, especially what we do, teaching adults, it does give us a lot of space mm-hmm. to be a bit more authentic than a lot of jobs. Yeah, I've definitely worked in jobs where I felt I couldn't show my personality much or mm-hmm. it was something a couple colleagues would maybe get to know after a few years of working with me. Uh, teaching, I can definitely be a bit more myself. But let's say yeah. there are certain opinions that one doesn't bring into that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, but there was a time when I was I was working at a cash desk, just checking out people's food mm-hmm. and then putting them into a bag. Oh yeah, that was that was something completely different. I was a robot in that situation, yeah, so yeah. that that sucked my soul a lot. And I think that's something that we're going to be talking a lot about today with our guest. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea of how you can be your authentic self. You know, how do you um, kind of balance this idea or try to escape maybe this idea of that soul sucking yeah. experience <laughs> right and how can you create uh, workplaces where people feel they can yeah. be themselves mm-hmm. so our guest today is David Papa he's a spiritual coach a leadership consultant and he's a host of the love and profit show which is a very cool podcast as well and uh, hi David hello thanks so much for having me I'm really happy to be here with you guys welcome yeah so can you tell us a little bit more about what you do yeah, well, I help leaders figure out uh, what's in their heart and connect with a bigger part of themselves and use that in their leadership mm. and to the culture that they're creating at work. And I do that with individuals as well who want to create transformations in their life. You know, there are some specific direct routes to creating transformation. Most of them have to do with our, you know, our the inner game. So that's the game I like to play. Oh, okay. inner game. Can you tell me more about what do you mean inner game? Yeah, well... Most of us are addicted to playing with the physical external circumstances of our lives. And we think that the external circumstances of our lives are what is going to bring us what we want. You know, if I can just get this right configuration of my job, if I can just live in the right place, if I can just find that right partner, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be okay. Then I'll feel good. But what we find is that never works. And uh, it doesn't work because if we're carrying feeling of sadness or if we're resisting happiness inside of ourselves no external circumstance is gonna change that we're we're carrying what we have inside into every external circumstance we find ourselves in so if we really want to create we'll find the happiness that we're looking for if we really want to find that sense of joy and alignment and love in our day-to-day experience it's about connecting with that inside ourselves and then when we go into external circumstances that match that now we can start to really feel that and now all of a sudden our life starts to transform so that's what i'm talking about i do feel though that if my hair were longer then i will be happy (laughs) i'm i'm positive about that it's quite easy to change yeah just wait until it grows (laughs) but uh, no absolutely i I'm very big on this as well, you know, in my coaching that people who focus on external circumstances to make them happier are often left 
disappointed. This mentality is, of course, you know, drilled into us right from a young age. Like, oh, okay, you have to study hard at school so you can get into a good university. You have to go to a good university so you can get a good job, so you can get money. And, you know, in the end, it's very empty, right? And, of course, money is helpful. <laughs> it gives us the means to an end. But people who are only chasing those things, yeah, often are not happy. So... What I want to ask is, how did you get into this kind of work? Oh, it's been it's been a process, probably 12 years, 12 or 13 years now, you know, when I first created my own meditation practice, you know, I, I, I was at a personal part of my life where I was severely depressed because um, everything that I had created in my life turned out didn't make me happy. You know, that was the big lesson I learned from my, my early 20s. I mean, I had a relationship that I was holding on to for dear life and uh, and for many more years than I need, should have needed to. I had a job that was great on paper, you know, and uh, I had I lived in a cool place. I mean, everything everything I had created in my life was totally in line with what I should do you know, air quotes. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, a series of events happened and I just woke up to the fact that none of it at all made, made me happy. And that my brain didn't actually know how to make me happy. That the, the whole logical, rational way that I had approached my life, the very analytical way that I'd learned to live, didn't make me happy at all. It couldn't, it couldn't make me happy. So I had to look for something else, but I didn't know what that was. I just knew nothing in my life fit. So it was pretty depressing. And at that, at that time, uh, you know, uh, uh, my aunt, actually, who is a spiritual teacher and a Reiki master, I never really paid attention to her work. And she just she handed me a book that was the first self-help book I ever read. And that led me into building a self-help practice. And then, you know, one thing after another, going to business school, you know, working in leadership positions while I continued my own personal spiritual practice. And then, you know, just one step after another led me to eventually working for myself starting Love and Profit and doing what I do today. I mean, it's been a long journey. One thing that I am a bit skeptical of when it comes to this type of practice with spirituality, you know, and, and coaching and focusing on internal happiness is that sometimes it can ignore material implications that people experience in their everyday life and issues of, of privilege. You know, you have to be quite privileged to be able to have time, right, to focus on spirituality. And also, um, you know, there's this idea of, um, of, you know, so you have problems in your life, but if you can just find internal happiness then everything will be okay. But what if some people's problems are real, you know, if they're living in poverty or if they can't have a job um, because of some disability, um, how can they just find internal happiness? Is this something that you ever explore or consider in your work? Yeah, absolutely. Those are great points. I've met lots of people who are really uh, high on the spiritual journey that cannot function in the in the regular world. You know, they can't hold down a job. They can't maintain a relationship, you know, so there is definitely an imbalance that can occur with people focusing sort of too much on their spirituality and then using it to make like a wear a rose colored glasses, you know, and there's, there's a whole term called spiritual bypassing, maybe part of it where, you know, people use spirituality to circumvent negative feelings, you know, instead of facing the act, what they actually feel, they're just, you know, Oh no, but everything is all is well. And everything is, uh, you know, everything's working out fine. And, you know, they, and they try to hang on to that idea when really inside they feel really torn up. And so while it's true that I believe everything is working out fine, if you don't feel that inside, you're ignoring a really important part of yourself. So no, what I, what I teach is, uh, is the opposite. What I teach is diving fully into exactly what you feel about what you're, what's going on in your life. If you feel really, sad or uh, or depressed or angry or scared about something you're experiencing in your life. The point is to dive into that feeling. The answer comes on the other side of that feeling, not from trying to ignore it or explain it away. I will say, though, that, uh, you know, when you, when people are study, when we study people with disabilities and have, you know, rated them on, ask them to rate themselves on subjective levels of happiness, they don't rate themselves any less happy than other people. If you, uh, if you ask people who have been through really traumatic, you know, physical accidents and whatnot, like people who have become paralyzed and, and whatnot, there's an initial dip 
in their, uh, you know, in their happiness. But then after that, they're just as happy as, as anyone else. So, you know, they're a great example of how external factors don't necessarily have to be our cue for whether we can be, you know, happy or not. So you're talking about happiness here. Can you, yeah, maybe define for some of the different terms that you're using in work, because you talked about spirituality, you talked about happiness, and I feel your work is something about being maybe authentic or connecting with yourself, being in line with yourself. Yeah, like higher self, deeper self, like, yeah, exactly what do you mean by these terms? Yeah. So so what, what are the exact terms? Like happiness, but <laughs> higher self, deeper self. What else did you mention? Oh, I don't know. Well, yeah. tell us what are some of the main terms you use, actually, when you're working with people? <laughs> well, what do they mean? What, what do they mean to you? Higher self is a good one, maybe to start mm-hmm. with. Okay. And uh, the higher self just means... Higher is a, is a tricky word. You know, we have these we have these words in our language that compare things and rank things, you know, and give things sort of an automatic hierarchy. So it's different. It's difficult to come up with a term, but it's basically the, the idea of the spiritual self, you know, the, the part of us that exists outside and beyond our physical body, you know, the sense you could call it your soul, I guess. And it's this idea that uh, there's a there's a really intelligent really powerful part of us that we can choose to pull into our physical life and our experience more and more and more and get more and more aligned with it. You know, many of us are running around and I know certainly it was like this for the majority of my life running around totally not even aware of this part of ourselves, not making any decisions from this part of ourselves, not trying to connect with the intelligence of this part of ourselves, you know, and when we, act like that, it really limits our options and our ability to feel the joy and love we want to have in our life. Because those feelings are a reflection of our alignment with our highest self. Can you give me some example of when you're aligned or when you're not aligned? Well, your, uh, your emotions are actually one, one easy way to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, this could potentially open up a rabbit hole, but if you're, if you're feeling, you know, if you're feeling really constricted, if you're feeling really heavy, if you're feeling about a decision or about something in your life, if you're feeling really, um, yeah, weighed down or crunched in some way, stifled in some way, that decision, that experience in your life is not in alignment with who you most want to be. It's not in alignment with your higher self. But if you are thinking about a decision and one decision gives you a sense of freedom, a sense of excitement, a sense of uh, a sense of energy coming through you, then that is a decision that's in alignment with your higher self. You know, there's a great author named Martha Beck, and she has this she has this test called the shackles on shackles off test. And this is a this is for use as a very practical use in any decision. So you basically imagine yourself taking one decision or another decision and you decide when I take this decision, does it feel like it puts shackles on me, you know, and like kind of chains me or does it feel like it breaks shackles off of me? Do I feel a slight increase in freedom? So you want to look for the shackles off decisions. And most of those decisions are counterintuitive to our logical mind and not what we've learned we should do. So. And I think, I think this definitely works in, and this is exactly how I make decisions as well as if I have a choice between two to maybe neutral or positive things, the thing that gives me the most energy, of course, you know, that's how I live my life personally. Um, but then what do you do if you have the choice between two negative things, if both options that you choose would result in something bad, not not something that would be good and bad, but something bad? How would you recommend to make a decision? How do you align yourself in this example? Yeah, well, one, op- one idea is to find another option. I mean, there's, there's a million options for any situation, but another thing to look at is make sure what you, you think, some, make sure if you believe something bad is going to happen, you test your assumptions because a lot of the time our brain is projecting into the future what it, bad things it thinks is going to happen. But that's just, that's just the brain trying to resolve its own anxiety when actually you have no idea what's going to happen. And if you feel into yourself Sometimes what your brain thinks is going to be bad or scary or like, oh, we shouldn't be in that situation. When you actually just let your body feel into that situation, your body realizes that 
no, that's fine. I actually get energy in the body moving toward that. So I think there are lots of those, there are lots of those decisions that people experience where their brain is trying to avoid it, but actually if they just let their brain get quiet and, or let their brain keep yelling, but instead move into the body and you'll find there's a different, there's a different uh, decision making mechanism happening below the brain. And you mean, when you mean get into the body, this is how I understand it. I understand it as in like literally thinking about where the feeling is like, am I feeling this? Like, is my heart racing fast? Is my stomach like uh, tense? You know, is my back like, like scrunched over or am I like holding my shoulders straight back? Like this is what you mean, like in the body. Exactly. Okay. The, the body is constantly giving us tremendous amounts of information about how we really feel and what we really want to do. And the body doesn't lie. So when we say our authentic self, you know, what is our authentic self versus, you know, our higher self? I mean, basically here's, here's what I'm, here's how I look at it is that our human, our human life, what we call ourselves, you know, I am, I call myself David. I'm like, you know, short white dude, you know, from the U S right. If that, that's a relative version of me. That is one version of many versions of my, that my soul has expressed through, right? That's what our human life is. So, and my personality, what I, who I think I am, all of that is just a relative self. All of that is a temporary relative expression of a much deeper, truer, longer lasting version of myself. And that's what the higher self is. So can we bring it back to work? <laughs> no, because I love talking about this kind of thing. But yeah, specifically, you work with leaders, right? You work in organizations. So what I was thinking a lot was, yeah, a lot of us try to find our so-called true selves or to seek alignment with ourselves. But a lot of people feel that that's something for private time. That's something for home but not something for your job, right? Uh, so I'll play you, yeah, I ask people, do you feel that you can be your true self at work? <laughs> Definitely not. I think I try to pretend to be someone far more competent than I actually am. It's a complicated question because I think there's a lot of social pressure in certain jobs to follow certain conventions. But for me personally, um, it's, it requires too much energy it's easier for me to just be authentic. So, you know, when I go to a place to work, if I can't be myself, I just don't work there. <laughs> um, I think it really depends on the work environment. I'm thinking back to several different jobs I've had most recently. Um, I was a tour guide and it was a very open and friendly company. And so I did feel that way. Like I could be myself. I, you know, could talk about personal problems with my boss even. And that was really nice. Um, but in other environments, maybe more um, corporate or more office focused, it was very, very different. Um, definitely, you know, put on a face and don't talk about stuff and definitely don't cry at work about work, <laughs> things like that. Um, so for me, it's entirely dependent on the environment and the environment that the employer creates. No. I don't think so, because the people at work would find my uh, involvement way too intense and I would care about the product way too much. I think it really depends on the line of work and the type of people that you work with. It's fine to be honest to good people, but if you're in a competitive field, it might not work out and good people can always turn out to be otherwise. And I know that in some jobs I've had, as I said, I haven't felt I could be... Okay, yeah, the term authentic self is tricky, but what I mean is I've had to put on a face, a show. I haven't felt it's a place where I can really, you know, bring my real feelings and emotions. So from your experience, David, of working uh, in organizations, how common is it that people do feel they can bring their authentic selves to work? Most people are not, and... There's a concept called emotional labor, which actually has been uh, written about quite a bit by women recently, talking about all the emotional labor that they hold in relationships and uh, the emotional labor they have to do in their lives. Emotional labor is something everybody takes on whenever they are acting in a way they don't really feel or, or holding back something that they do really feel. 
And emotional labor is, is uh, just, we are overloaded in emotional labor in most workplaces. So, and, and that takes energy. This, this act of holding back what you really feel and pretending or, try, or, or being something you're, you don't really feel, those, those two things require a lot of energy and they cause stress in the body. So that's energy that you cannot then use for creating the things you want in your life. That's energy you can, that you have less, it's less energy you now have to use for experiencing all the things you want to experience. So emotional labor is uh, the consequence of not being our authentic self at work. I was just thinking as you're explaining this about one experience that I had where I was having a really bad day and I was so devastated that I just felt like I couldn't go to work, but then I did go to work. And after two hours of teaching, I felt so much better because actually I was able to step away from that emotion, put on the mask for a bit, and then I felt better. So what you're explaining, it seems... um, a bit like a different experience than what I had where putting on the mask was actually quite helpful for me to, uh, I I felt like I was doing so much emotional labor, of course, while I was teaching, but that in a way picked me up um, to be able to deal with my other emotion that I was dealing with in my real life. Mm -hmm. Um, Have you guys ever had this experience or how would you connect this with with what you're talking about? I was going to say, I think I have the same thing with teaching, but I think that's because when you're teaching, you have to be smiley. You talk about quite fun, trivial topics, right? And there's maybe this idea that when you smile, you actually fool your brain into feeling happier. But if your job sucked, (laughs) if you had to go for two hours and do something completely different that wasn't, you know, friendly and interacting with people, then it would probably be a different experience, right? So maybe I don't know. I ha- I've had jobs where I was working in a warehouse. Like I said, I had the supermarket job, and I had similar feelings as well, where I was able to just escape, you know, the emotions of everyday life in, in some form, and then go back to it, and then I was able to deal with it so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that I think that this is the right thing that everybody should put on a mask and then they can deal with their emotions, but this is just an experience I had, and I'm just wondering how it can work within what you're explaining. Yeah. Do you like teaching? <laughs> she's making a face now I mean so so I I some days you know of course it's something interesting for me to do I like that I can do this as my way of making money I like that it's not my goal in life to teach English forever I would love to I mean my goal is to be a professor and so yes I love teaching teaching English as a language it's something that I'm doing to make money and I'm okay with it. Okay. So you do love teaching itself. So what I would say is what likely happened to you on that day? Well, two things you're talking about that are, that are useful. One is that it does help to get a little bit of distance from our emotional triggers and our emotional charges. And sometimes taking a, taking a break or switching the situation can help us find a way to deal with them, deal with them better. The thing is, is that that doesn't always mean we're putting a mask on because at any given time, there are many, many feelings we're feeling. Even if we have a devastating thing happen to us, those parts of us that feel joy and love in life, they didn't disappear. They're just a little bit suppressed compared to whatever the big uncomfortable emotions that we're feeling based on the devastating event. So for example, one thing that for the, in this example that you talked about, one of the things that could be happening is you had a really bad day, you had some really difficult emotions, and a part of you actually loves teaching. So a part of your authentic self is coming out when you're doing teaching. So you just shift it into that part of yourself for a little while, got some distance from the other stuff, and then we're able to, to deal with them. We have many, many, many parts of ourselves, and you know we can, we can sort of judge if we're taking on emotional labor versus switching into another authentic part of ourselves by the tension we feel in the body and how much energy it, it takes. If you're, if it's an energy drain, you know, it's emotional labor. Like if it's, if, it, if you're just feeling over time, like, you know, having to put on that smile as an example, you know, okay. So two jobs that take a lot of emotional labor, 
just as in a simple example way is being like working on an airplane. Okay. Or working in a restaurant, working on an airplane. Think about that. These people are totally most, some travelers are really stressed out, always worried about their luggage, you know, so many problems. And these people who work on the airplane, they, they are just, their job is to just be smiling and helpful and take care of your bags. And then people ask, you know, insane questions. You know what I mean? That takes a lot of emotional labor. If those people are having a bad day, you know, they have to put on that, that smile. Now, if that, if that smile and that, and they get real joy from inside themselves, helping other people and taking care of other people on a plane, then it's not going to be emotional labor. It's just them switching it into authentic part of themselves. But if they're doing the job just to make money, because that's their job and, and they had a crappy morning, but now they have to put on a smiley face, you know, now that's going to be an energy drain on them. And probably some of their discomfort is going to sneak out and squeeze out in their interactions with people. So you see, it's, it's about each of us understanding who we are as a person and looking at our own sources of energy gains and drains and using that internal map to, to help our own journey of self-care, you know, to navigate our own authentic expressions. So if I can, if I can use this example of working in, in an airline, this is a very interesting example because it kind of aligns with one of my passions and Gwen's as well, which is, and maybe you use, well, I don't know you well enough, is social justice. And, um, and this fits in with, with the airline industry because, um, because working uh, as a stewardess in an airline is an extremely sexist industry. Maybe you kind of like working in the airline industry as a stewardess, for example, but at the same time, the industry is very sexist, so it's difficult. And so if you can just align with your true self, then you can be okay with it. Is that what you're trying to say? Because, because the way I see it is like discomfort and disalignment can sometimes be really good for, for material change, you know, so you can fight against some injustice that you're having of a sex industry. Um, if I can see I am uncomfortable with this, so what can I do in the real world to change it? Yeah. When you go into organizations, I guess how much change that you push or implement or suggest is based on internal changes and how people think and how much is actual concrete steps right so if you see something where you think hey this isn't helping people be authentic and happy at work how much do you actually yeah get them to make those real concrete steps well it it always ends up turning into something concrete the thing that is important though is to realize that the actions that we can think of, the options that we have at our disposal are only based on our level of awareness. So if you are, the first step is getting a higher level of awareness and that's the internal work. And then you find actions that actually create the transformation. You know, it's the same it's the same. If we're talking about transforming things at work or transforming things that are alive or transforming big social justice issues, you know, I mean, I want to see a world where there's just planet-wide abundance and social equality and, you know, the amount of joy and love everyone feels on the whole planet is completely beyond what is now. And I think the best way for me to get there and for, for all of us to get there is for every person to work on themselves. If everybody works on themselves and gets to a higher level of awareness and steps more into their own sense of love, then they'll be able to find the actions, find the next best steps that are actually going to create the transformation they want to see. And so, well, sorry, what transformations have you seen then? What material uh, transformations have you seen in workplaces that you've experienced or have participated in? Sure. There was one company that, that uh, was finding that in their employee surveys, there was this, some aspect of trust or respect was not being fulfilled. Employees rated uh, most things about their work really high, except for this some, some sense that they, they weren't fully respected or there, there was some lack of, of trust. That's what they were getting indications from these, from these questions. So they asked me to help them with that. And what I did was created a, uh, I got all the leaders of the company and I put them in a circle and we didn't use any slides or PowerPoints. We just connected with each other on a deeper level than they had connected with each other before. How? By sitting in a circle? 
I'm yeah. joking. I'm sorry. Some talking. Can you give me more information? Uh, how, how they connected? Specific exercises that we that you do mm-hmm. that uh, you wouldn't normally do in, in the in the harried, anxious, you know, checking things off the to do list version of a workplace. There are exercises you can do that actually just get you into your body and get you into connecting with the other people in the room. It really pull you into the present moment and start to share things that are vulnerable. And start to actually feel the emotions moving through your body. And you then would, when you do that in a group, all of a sudden you have a different experience with the people around you. Okay, so let's imagine we're, we're in a circle here. So what would you tell us to do, you know, if we were doing this kind of practice? How would you tell me to, to get into my body, to be more vulnerable? Like what kind of, uh, what, what's maybe like one exercise, like one specific exercise that you've done? Sure. Well... If I were going to start the meeting, the first thing I would do is I would try to save people from any emotional labor they're carrying. So I would start the meeting by asking everybody to say, how are you arriving to this meeting? I arrived. Well, I live here, so. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean how are you feeling right now? For example, you know, uh, someone might have had a really crappy traffic on the way to the meeting. They might be really stressed out. They might be arriving to that meeting. Most workplace meetings just start. And when you take a pause to actually look at what are the emotions people are bringing into the situation, you realize you, you give space for those, those to be relaxed. And if you don't do that, that stress that someone had on their commute, for example, they're actually t- having that with them through the whole meeting. So then some of their responses are going to be kind of affected by that stress. And by the other people in the room, they, they didn't, they didn't hear about this, you know, difficult commute. So they're just assuming the person doesn't like, so one of the ideas in the meeting, but actually what's just there is happening is they're reacting from their own stress. So the first thing is to clear that out and say, how are you arriving to this meeting? You know, I had one meeting where, uh, there was like uh, maybe 18 people and we did this exercise and almost, I mean, it was maybe 70, 80% of the people said, Oh, there's so much going on at work right now. We're in such a busy season. I'm really stressed. And then it was just like down the line, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. So that was great to know because then what I did was the, the first exercise we did was an exercise with the nervous system and the body to release the stress and change the energy in the room. And then we did that and people within a few minutes were, were like laughing and smiling and, and like, you know, I mean, it was a completely different atmosphere that and had we not done something like that, the whole meeting would have been different. Hours of work would have been different. So that's one that's one way that you do it is you, you ask people how they're arriving and you really make space to hear that. I'm really glad you mentioned the word vulnerable as well, um, because one of the books I really loved a couple of years ago was Reinventing Organizations. Mm. Uh, It's by Frederick Lalu. And uh, one of the quotes that I kind of grabbed here that I wanted to bring up was he says, workplaces have traditionally encouraged people to show up with their professional self and to check all other parts of themselves at the door. And he says they often require us to show a masculine resolve to display determination and strength and to hide doubts and vulnerability. You know, rationality rules and the emotional, intuitive and spiritual selves are typically unwelcome or out of place. I love that quote and I was thinking further to how in a lot of environments, I mean, I'm imagining especially corporate, you know, tough environments where people are afraid of showing weakness because that means their status is affected and challenged, right? So how do you persuade people to show vulnerability in this kind of work environment? Are they not resistant to letting their coworkers see that vulnerable side of them? Yeah, totally. You know, I love actually the masculine uh, piece of that quote because I think that actually that ties into a lot of what what creates the problems. The work, traditionally workplaces for the last several hundred years, maybe more, But what we know since the Industrial Revolution is they're incredibly masculine-oriented places. Um, Our model of leadership is a very, you know, kind of overly masculine model of leadership where it's about, like, you know, this this one maverick leader kind of, like, holding a sword forward and, like, driving, you know, the driving the way and everybody is following them. And, you know, it's like this this hero, what we think of as like a hero mentality. But when you look at the studies of high-performing teams, you find that women, women leaders are actually more likely to create a high-performing team. And that's because they are typically 
in the work in the workplace and you typically in the workplace women are more focused on the relationships and the interstitial uh the interstitial context of how what people are experiencing and that's actually what is the emotional experience of people at work is actually what's driving the majority of their behavior so when you're not paying attention to that you know and that that side doesn't have a, there's not a lot of room for that in the masculine model of leadership and so when that side is uh unattended to then you know you start that's when a lot of these communication problems happen that's when a lot of the performance dips happen so you know actually uh we need a revised model that includes both you know allowing for people's emotional and spiritual self because that's what's driving so much of their behavior that's actually what also is driving their needs and engagement you can't connect engagement at work people feeling really happy with their job that's not a rational process Okay, that's an emotional process. That's an inner game process. That's not, you can't convince someone into logically, with logical arguments, into engagement of their job. They either feel it or they don't. So you have to create the, that feeling or help them access that feeling. So I actually used to work in an organization that gave surveys to companies to see how happy the staff were at work. I won't name the company, but. Um, we dealt with a lot of organizations and we had a lot of questions we'd give them, you know, finding out how engaged they were at work. And what we typically found was that, you know, how happy people were with the connections they had at work was one of the strongest predictors of how happy they were in the workplace. And, you know, I often think we used to, and, you know, we, I mean, society, humanity, we used to live in small units, right? Like villages or tribes. And we would hunt and gather together we would work together we wouldn't go off to another town or city to do our day job and come back so these connections were so important back then and now we're expected to save our meaningful connections and tribes for the evenings and weekends and just spend the majority of our time in this kind of soulless environment where we can't be ourselves we're showing emotions are you know a sign of weakness one of my friends was telling me that he did try to be his authentic self at work, but he felt he got burnt. And now he puts up a wall where he's like, OK, this is my work self. People can only get this close to me as a real person. And then, you know, I won't let them any closer. So, yeah, like the way people feel about their co-workers is surely like a huge predictor, right, of how much they care about the job and how, let's say, I don't want to use the word productive. I always feel it makes people sound like robots. But what I want to ask you is, yeah, can you see the real clear differences in organizations where people have real authentic connections with their coworkers versus when they feel, okay, I'm in work mode. I can't show this other side of myself. 100%. This, uh, this idea of, of emotions are weak is part of a masculine model. You know, we, men learn, men learn in the West when they're growing up that until, you know, to have, to have emotions means you're not a man. Mm. And, uh, you know, so a lot of men from a very early age get completely disconnected from their emotions. And this is a, <laughs> this is a whole different topic that, I mean, it's a big topic that affects a lot of elements of society, but it's, it's really present at work, especially when the leadership model is so masculine. So, and there's nothing wrong with masculinity i mean masculinity is amazing you know the the challenge is that it's we're really overbalanced or like uh, imbalanced you know so we need to rebalance we gotta get, we're all in our yang we gotta get more yin in the workplace <laughs> you know that's what i'm saying yeah. and uh so yeah for example one of my one of my clients you know there's one team that's done quite a bit of work with me and uh and, and some of the other teams haven't and this, this team is run by uh, a, a leader who's, who's particularly, she's a female leader, and she's particularly uh, attentive to the, the emotions of, uh, that are going on in the team. And so she had the whole team go through a, a multiple month process around emotional intelligence and developing deeper connections with each other. And, you know, the whole point of our work together was helping people feel those deeper connections you're talking about with the the people they spend almost the majority of their lives with, you know, almost seeing they're at work almost more uh, with the people at work than they are with their partners. Right. So 
if you're not having those meaningful connections with those people, you're absolutely right. We're missing, we're missing such a level of richness in our life. You know, when we don't, when we see work, it's just like, uh, you know, I got this robotic activity now. Uh, yeah. I will say some people, some people claim they're super happy just going to work, doing their stuff and then going to live out, outside of work and get everything meaningful outside of work. And if that is really happy for you, you know, okay, that's cool. You got to look into yourself and decide whether that's true or not. For many people, exactly what you're saying is taking place. They're, they're feeling disconnected at work and that's the majority of their time. And they start to feel disconnected in their lives. And that team that spent the time doing this work is the highest performing team in this whole company. In fact, it's the only team that hasn't, uh, that has consistently grown um, it hasn't had any moments of, uh, periods of stagnation in their, in their growth, in, in their client growth, in their business development growth. So, you know, those, those kind of connections change their ideas, their level of creativity, because people feel safer to share new ideas and try new things when that, that level of creativity and innovation then helps their, their, their business growth. You know, those people are happier at work. And we know from books like the happiness advantage that, uh, by Sean Asher, that, uh, people, who are happy at work are sell 37% more, you know, are 31% more productive, make 19% less errors, you know, these kind of things. So, you know, the, the happiness and performance are extremely connected. And as you say, happiness and connection are extremely connected. So we're going to use happiness as a commodity in order to enhance capitalism and production. Mm, this is what I wanted to say was I would counter that book with the happiness industry, who I forgot who it's by, but I'll put it mm. on the on the blog. You know, the dark side, right, is you get these opportunistic managers who go, yeah. oh, I want to make more money. Okay, I need my staff to be happier. Exactly. How can I <laughs> almost force this onto them? And the happiness industry is a really interesting book, right, because it talks about the the dark side of this. And, I mean, it's funny because this is what I study. This was my job, but I'm very cynical of it still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I think reasonably so because... We see so many uh, companies that are doing this as a way to to enhance their profits, you know, in order to enhance productivity, in order to make people work longer hours because they're more satisfied with their work. So they're actually mm, they're working loyal, longer because they like and they're us. loyal. Yeah. And, and, you know, what is that really doing for the world at large as well? So maybe they're satisfied when they go into their workplace and, um, you know, making their products, which make people buy things and, um, you know, adding to the consumerist society. Um, but... But what does this do for the world at large? It seems to take away from it from what well, I see. I think there's, I see what you're saying. And I think there's something really disempowering in that view, which is that it, you know, the things you described, like companies making people stay longer hours because they're more happy and then they're producing more and then people are buying more. I, all of that for me is overridden by people's individual choice, the power of individual choice. Like if someone's happy at work and they want to stay more, that's their individual choice. If someone wants to buy more or not, that's their individual no, choice. It's not, no, it's absolutely not. The individual choice, I feel, I mean, the reason why I am struggling with your opinion is because I feel like you're presenting it in such a easy way of like, <laughs> we just have to love and we just have to understand and it's your choice. You can do whatever you want if you just break free from it. Um, and I agree with you. Of course we, um, we do, we do have a choice. We can, um, I mean, for me, like one of my favorite quotes is like confidence is the ability to know that you have choices. Um, that is definitely how I view, um, choice and opportunity and finding happiness in your life. Um, but again, what I'm struggling with is that I feel like you're making it sound so easy. You're not looking at like the mental health issues that people have, you know, the physical dependencies that people can have, you know, the dopamine, you know, reaction that people have when they get likes on Instagram, which causes them to, to get sucked into this world. Um, the same thing goes for, for work addiction as well. Um, I would so, agree. I would agree mm -hmm. with you. I think uh, you're, you're right. I, I'm not, you know, maybe I'm making it sound too easy. I'm, I'm not trying to say it's easy. Change is always happening. Nothing about the physical world stays the same. So, the challenge is not having to make change because everything is going to change automatically. Everything is temporary already. The challenge is create, creating the change that is a match for what we really want to experience in the world. 
creating a, tr- a change that is in alignment with the feelings we really want to have in our life of joy and love and happiness. So to create, out of all the possible options you have for creating change, which are the ones that are aligned with, with that are most aligned and most powerful for more joy and happiness? Well, the only way, to, in my view, to find those options is to first connect with the joy and happiness inside yourself. That's how then you get that option for the most powerful practical change. So that's kind of, that's how I put it together. Yeah, I, I think I have a much more clear understanding of what you mean. And I like, you know, how we put it where the, the world is constantly changing, you know, but we always have these choices of uh, how can we, how can we deal with that uh, reaction maybe to the change as well, you know, so we can go in the most positive direction. Um Yeah. So these are things that people could start to think about, even if they're in a workplace that doesn't support authenticity. Right. So even if they're in a workplace where their manager has no interest in happiness or authenticity, would you say that people can still start to work on understanding themselves and still, you know, they might feel like, okay, now that I understand myself more, I'm definitely quitting this job. (laughs) But um Yeah, what can people do, I guess, themselves if they're in a workplace that doesn't really support that kind of connection to your higher self? Yeah, yeah, great question. I I see it as a form of self-care to continually ask yourself, how can I be more authentic in my life? Because it's going to give you more energy. It's going to give you more ability to have the agency that we want people to have. So if your manager really doesn't care at all about happiness and and you're there, you have to start asking yourself, you know, what? What's the emotional labor I'm carrying? How and where are the places I'm not being authentic? And most most of the time, the consequences that people imagine for being more authentic at work, even in crappy workplaces, are so far off of what actually happens. You know, the more authenticity, people are afraid, for example, of, oh, yeah, my boss will fire me. My boss will not favor me. You know, like uh, I'll lose out on this or my coworkers will think I'm weird. And that those kind of things happen such so on such a major minority of the time compared to the extremely positive reactions that I've seen time and time again, to people being more authentic, you know, being, being more vulnerable and, and more authentic gives an opportunity for someone to connect with you on a deeper level. And since we're all, well, since we've talked about how we really all crave that level of connection, people are automatically going to start doing that you know, more, it's kind of like it spreads emotions, emotions, positive or negative spread in a workplace, you know? So there's, you have the opportunity to actually, every person has the opportunity to start to change the culture in kind of like a mini bubble around themselves by bringing more of their happiness and their authenticity to what they're doing. And that's the way to start. And not everybody will react positively to that. Okay, that's fine. But there will be people who do. And those people become like your team. Those people become like your little subculture, you know? And if you have a really, you know, crappy boss who then punishes you for that authenticity, well, that's when you got to decide, am I going to start to apply for new jobs or not? You know, I got to take some, take some ownership about what your next step is going to be. So that's what I would say is that most of the consequences that we imagine for being more authentic are, are specifically, are actually just imagination. They're imagination based on our fear of being rejected. And most of the time, we are not going to get rejected at all, like we think, from being vulnerable. In fact, all of Brene Brown's amazing work is about how being more vulnerable creates more of that connection, you know. And the, and and it's our fear that stops us from being vulnerable that actually stops that connection from happening. So when you're if you're struggling with being more authentic, first just think about why you're afraid to be authentic. What are you imagining is going to happen? And know that's probably not likely to happen. Yeah, definitely. I've noticed when I'm teaching and I and I make mistakes. And I, I like look, I'm like, what am I doing? And I laugh at myself and I'm just like, this is stupid. Um, I have to break something from the board or whatever. And then we're all like laughing together. And it's a really good time um, because I'm not just being this professional yeah, teacher and never make human, mistakes. Right? And, and it's so much fun um, just being able to to laugh about the humanness uh, yeah. which exists in all of they us as well. see that you're mm-hmm. a fallible human being. Yeah. yeah. And uh, thank you for mentioning Brene Brown as well. I love her work. Brene, come on our show if you're listening. <laughs> Do you know her stuff? Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, definitely um, worth. Uh, I'll add it to the blog later on, so people can check her out too. I'll tell a quick story as an example. You know, the last place I was employed, I had a I had a manager who was pretty robotic, and uh, you know, he didn't show a lot of emotion at work, and 
I never really was able to connect with him much uh, on, a, on a personal level. And then one day he was preparing for a speech at a like conference. And um, the speech was about why he worked at our company. And our company was a social enterprise. It was a purpose-driven company. We sold books uh, online and we raised money for literacy nonprofits all over the world. And he told a story I had never heard before about his time in the Peace Corps in Papua New Guinea, helping, bring, help, uh, helping people learn how to read and bring books to this group of, uh, to these people he was working with and how, how moved he was emotionally seeing the people's reaction to this, to these, to these books that they were getting for the first time. And he was telling that he's, so he was practicing the speech he was going to give in our workplace. And he started, he started crying. Like he, he got really emotional and I never wanted to work more for him than that moment. I mean, that seeing that brought out in me and I'm sure he was terrified to get emotional at work. You know, I'm sure he was, but seeing that brought out at me, seeing that brought out in me such a desire to, to help him and do my best so that we could achieve our collective mission together. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that can happen, you know, and he was probably thinking oh, all these people are going to think I'm a weak leader. You know, all these people are thinking I'm going to, you know, they, they can't trust me because I might get emotional, you know, all the things that we that go through our brain and the exact opposite happened, at least in, in me. Great. So all the times that I've cried at work, perfectly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, uh, David, thank you for uh, talking to us today. Yeah. Thank you for the, the wonderful roller coaster journey experience. And, and I really appreciate uh, the, the thoughtfulness and the time that you've taken uh, with us as well today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate, appreciate your questions and your challenges. You know, I don't, I don't ever want anyone to take anything I say like verbatim. I think everyone needs to challenge it and decide what works for themselves. So that is uh, really good that we had that discussion that like fun. that. I really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Great. So Liz, what are we going to talk about next week? <laughs> We're going to talk about polyamory. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Kind of a change work. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Polyamory. Yep. What is it? How does it work? What does it work? Pros and Who? cons. Yeah. Yeah. All of that stuff. Who, what, where, when, why. Mm-hmm. And how. Well, <laughs> maybe. How. What All are right. the exact practicalities? <laughs> so, um, okay. So thank you guys so much. Yeah. Thank you. And maybe let us know about your experiences of being authentic at work. Yeah. Has yeah. it worked for you? I would love to hear your crying stories at work so I don't feel so alone. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, I've cried at work too. Perfect. There you go. Have you cried at work? I have. Great. All right. Good. All right. We're all on the same page. 100% of the room has cried at work. All right. Thank you so much for listening and we'll hear you. See you next time. See you next time. Bye. The Way We Connect is hosted and directed by Gwen and Liz from a small living room studio in Prague. Special thanks to Lee for sound editing and production. Luisina Maleo for logo design and our wonderful fans for their support. Visit thewaywekinect.org for more information and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under The Way We Connect. And if you have a moment, which you know you do, you can rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can also subscribe by hitting the subscribe button. Uh, We are new and shiny, so we would really appreciate it. Thank you.